Section seven of Woman in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clatt. Woman in the Nineteenth Century and Kindred Papers Relating to the Sphere, Condition, and Duties of Women by Margaret Fuller. Section seven. Woman in the Nineteenth Century. Part five. These are all instances of marriage as intellectual companionship. The parties meet mind to mind, and a mutual trust is produced, which can buckler them against a million. They work together for a common purpose, and in all these instances with the same implement, the pen. The pen and the writing-desk furnish forth as naturally the retirement of woman as of man. A pleasing expression in this kind is afforded by the union in the names of the Howitts. William and Mary Howitt were heard named together for years, supposing them to be brother and sister. The equality of labours and reputation even so was auspicious. More so now we find them man and wife. In his late work on Germany Howitt mentions his wife with pride as one among the constellation of distinguished Englishwomen, and in a graceful, simple manner and still we contemplate with pleasure the partnership in literature and affection between the Howitts, the congenial pursuits and productions, the pedestrian tours wherein the married pair showed that marriage, on a wide enough basis, does not destroy the inexhaustible entertainment which lovers find in one another's company. In naming these instances I do not mean to imply that community of employment is essential to the union of husband and wife, more than to the union of friends. Harmony exists in difference no less than in likeness, if only the same keynote govern both parts. Woman the poem, man the poet, woman the heart, man the head. Such divisions are only important when they are never to be transcended. If nature is never bound down, nor the voice of inspiration stifled, that is enough. We are pleased that women should write and speak, if they feel need of it, from having something to tell but silence for ages would be no misfortune if that silence be from divine command and not from man's tradition. While Getz von Berlichingen rides to battle, his wife is busy in the kitchen. But difference of occupation does not prevent that community of inward life, that perfect esteem, with which he says, Whom God loves, to him gives he such a wife. Manzoni thus dedicates is Adelchi. To his beloved and venerated wife, Enriqueta Luigia Blondel, who with conjugal affection and maternal wisdom has preserved a virgin mind, the author dedicates this Adelchi, grieving that he could not, by a more splendid and more durable monument, honour the dear name and the memory of so many virtues. The relation could not be fairer, nor more equal, if she too had written poems. Yet the position of the parties might well have been the reverse. The woman might have sung the deeds, given voice to the life of the man, and beauty would have been the result. As we see in pictures of Arcadia, the nymph singing to the shepherds, or the shepherd with his pipe alluring the nymphs, either makes a good picture. The sounding lyre requires not muscular strength, but energy of soul to animate the hand which would control it. Nature seems to delight in varying the arrangements, as if to show that she will be fettered by no rule and we must admit the same varieties that she admits. 
The fourth and highest grade of marriage union is the religious, which may be expressed as pilgrimage toward a common shrine. This includes the others, home sympathies and household wisdom, for these pilgrims must know how to assist each other along the dusty way, intellectual communion, for how sad it would be on such a journey to have a companion to whom you could not communicate your thoughts and aspirations as they sprang to life, who would have no feeling for the prospects that open, more and more glorious as we advance, who would never see the flowers that may be gathered by the most industrious traveller. It must include all these. Such a fellow-pilgrim Count Zizendorf seems to have found in his Countess, of whom he writes thus. Twenty-five years' experience has shown me that just the helpmeet whom I have is the only one that could suit my vacation. Who else could have so carried through my family affairs? Who lived so spotlessly before the world? Who so wisely aided me in my rejection of a dry morality? Who so clearly set aside the Phariseeism, which as years passed threatened to creep in among us? Who so deeply discerned as to the spirits of delusion which sought to bewilder us? Who would have governed my whole economy so wisely, richly, and hospitably, when circumstances commanded? Who have taken indifferently the part of servant or mistress, without on the one side affecting an especial spirituality, on the other being sullied by any worldly pride? Who, in a community where all ranks are eager to be on a level, would from wise and real causes have known how to maintain inward and outward distinctions? Who, without a murmur, have seen her husband encounter such dangers by land and sea? Who undertaken with him and sustained such astonishing pilgrimages? Who, amid such difficulties, would have always held up her head and supported me? Who found such vast sums of money and acquitted them on her own credit? And finally, who, of all human beings, could so well understand and interpret to others my inner and outer being as this one, of such nobleness in her way of thinking, such great intellectual capacity, and so free from the theological perplexities that enveloped me. Let any one peruse, with all intentness, the lineaments of this portrait, and see if the husband had not reason, with this air of solemn rapture and conviction, to challenge comparison. We are reminded of the majestic cadence of the line whose feet stop in the just proportion of humanity, daughter of God and Mati accomplished Eve. An observer adds this testimony. We may in many marriages regard it as the best arrangement if the man has so much advantage over his wife that she can, without much thought of her own, be led and directed by him as by a father. But it was not so with the Count and his consort. She was not made to be a copy. She was an original. And while she loved and honoured him, she thought for herself on all subjects with so much intelligence that he could and did look on her as a sister and friend also. Compare with this refined specimen of a religiously civilized life the following imperfect sketch of a North American Indian, and we shall see that the same causes will always produce the same results. The flying pigeon, Rochevain, was the wife of a barbarous chief who had six others, but she was his only true wife, because the only one of a strong and pure character and having this inspired a veneration, as like as the mind of man permitted to that inspired by the Countess Zizendorf. She died when her son was only four years old, yet left on his mind a feeling of reverent love worthy the thought of Christian chivalry. Grown to manhood, he shed tears on seeing her portrait. 
The Flying Pigeon Rochevine was chaste, mild, gentle in her disposition, kind, generous, and devoted to her husband. A harsh word was never known to proceed from her mouth, nor was she ever known to be in a passion. Mabasca used to say of her, after her death, that her hand was shut when those who did not want came into her presence, but when the really poor came in, it was like a strainer full of holes, letting all she held in it pass through. In the exercise of generous feeling she was uniform. It was not indebted for its exercise to whim, nor caprice, nor partiality. No matter of what nation the applicant for her bounty was, or whether at war or peace with her nation, if he were hungry she fed him, if naked she clothed him, and if houseless she gave him shelter. The continued exercise of this generous feeling kept her poor, and she has been known to give away her last blanket, all the honey that was in the lodge, the last bladder of bear's oil, and the last piece of dried meat. She was scrupulously exact in the observance of all the religious rites which her faith imposed upon her. Her conscience is represented to have been extremely tender. She often feared that her acts were displeasing to the great spirit, when she would blacken her face and retire to some lone place, and fast and pray. To these traits should be added, but for want of room, anecdotes which show the quick decision and vivacity of her mind. Her face was in harmony with this combination. Her brow is as ideal and the eyes and lids as devout and modest as the Italian picture of the Madonna, while the lower part of the face had the simplicity and childish strength of the Indian race. Her picture presents the finest specimen of Indian beauty we have ever seen. Such a woman is the sister and friend of all beings, as the worthy man is their brother and helper. With like pleasure we survey the pairs wedded on the eve of missionary effort. They, indeed, are fellow pilgrims on the well-made road, and whether or no they accomplish all they hope for the sad Hindu or the nearer savage, we feel that in the burning waste their love is like to be a healing dew, in the forlorn jungle a tent of solace to one another. They meet as children of one father, to read together one book of instruction. We must insert in this connection the most beautiful picture presented by ancient literature of wedded love under this noble form. It is from the romance in which Xenophon, the chivalrous Greek, presents his ideal of what human nature should be. The generals of Cyrus had taken captive a princess, a woman of unequalled beauty, and hastened to present her to the prince as that part of the spoil he would think most worthy of his acceptance. Cyrus visits the lady, and is filled with immediate admiration by the modesty and majesty with which she receives him. He finds her name is Panthea, and that she is the wife of Abradatus, a young king whom she entirely loves. He protects her as a sister in his camp till he can restore her to her husband. After the first transports of joy at this reunion, the heart of Panthea is bent on showing her love and gratitude to her magnanimous and delicate protector and as she has nothing so precious to give as the aid of Abradatus, that is what she most wishes to offer. Her husband is of one soul with her in this, as in all things. The description of her grief and self-destruction, after the death which ensued upon this devotion, I have seen quoted, but never that of their parting when she sends him forth to battle. I shall copy both. If they have been read by any of my readers, they may be so again with profit in this connection for never were the heroism of a true woman, and the purity of love in a true marriage, painted in colours more delicate and more lively. The chariot of Abradatus, that had four perches and eight horses, was completely adorned for him. 
and when he was going to put on his linen corslet, which was a sort of armour used by those of his country, Panthea brought him a golden helmet, and arm-pieces, broad bracelets for his wrists, a purple habit that reached down to his feet, and hung in folds at the bottom, and a crest dyed of a violet colour. These things she had made unknown to her husband, and by taking the measure of his armour. He wondered when he saw them, and inquired thus of Panthea, "'And have you made me these arms, woman, by destroying your own ornaments?' "'No, by Jove,' said Panthea, "'not what is the most valuable of them. For it is you, if you appear to others to be what I think you, that will be my greatest ornament.' And saying that she put on him the armour, and though she endeavoured to conceal it, the tears poured down her cheeks. When Abradatus, who was before a man of fine appearance, was set out in these arms, he appeared the most beautiful and noble of all, especially being likewise so by nature. Then, taking the reins from the driver, he was just preparing to mount the chariot, when Panthea, after she had desired all that were there to retire, thus said, O Abradatus, if ever there was a woman who had a greater regard to her husband than to her own soul, I believe you know that I am such a one. What need I therefore speak of things in particular? For I reckon that my actions have convinced you more than any words I can now use. And yet, though I stand thus affected toward you, as you know I do, I swear by this friendship of mine and yours that I certainly would rather choose to be put underground jointly with you, approving yourself a brave man, than to live with you in disgrace and shame. So much do I think you and myself worthy of the noblest things. Then I think that we both lie under great obligations to Cyrus, that when I was a captive and chosen out for himself, he thought fit to treat me neither as a slave, nor indeed as a woman of mean account, but he took and kept me for you, as if I were his brother's wife. Besides, when Araspes, who was my guard, went away from him, I promised him that if he would allow me to send for you, you would come to him and approve yourself a much better and more faithful friend than Araspes. Thus she spoke, and Abradatus, being struck with admiration at her discourse, laying his hand gently on her head, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, made this prayer. Do thou, O greatest Jove, I grant me to appear a husband worthy of Panthea, and a friend worthy of Cyrus, who has done us so much honour. Having said this, he mounted the chariot by the door of the driver's seat, and after he had got up, when the driver shut the door, Panthea, who had now no other way to salute him, kissed the seat of the chariot. The chariot then moved, and she unknown to him followed, till Abradatus, turning about and seeing her, said, Take courage, Panthea, fare you happily and well, and now go your ways. On this her women and servants carried her to her conveyance, and laying her down concealed her by throwing the covering of a tent over her. The people, though Abradatus and his chariot made a noble spectacle, were not able to look at him till Panthea was gone. After the battle. Cyrus calling to some of his servants, "'Tell me,' said he, "'has any one seen Abradatus? For I admire that he now does not appear.' One replied, "'My sovereign, it is because he is not living, but died in the battle as he broke in with his chariot on the Egyptians. All the rest, except his particular companions, they say, turned off when they saw the Egyptians' compact body.' His wife is now said to have taken up his dead body, to have placed it in the carriage that she herself was conveyed in, and to have brought it hither to some place on the river Pactolus, and her servants are digging a grave on a certain elevation. They say that his wife, 
after setting him out with all the ornaments she has, is sitting on the ground with his head on her knees. Cyrus, hearing this, gave himself a blow on the thigh, mounted his horse at a leap, and taking with him a thousand horse, rode away to this scene of affliction, but gave orders to Gadatus and Gabrias to take with them all the rich ornaments proper for a friend and an excellent man deceased, and to follow after him. And whoever had herds of cattle with him, he ordered them to take both oxen and horses and sheep in good number, and to bring them away to the place, where by inquiry they should find him to be, that he might sacrifice these to Abradatus. As soon as he saw the woman sitting on the ground, and the dead body there lying, he shed tears at the afflicting sight, and said, Alas, thou brave and faithful soul! Hast thou left us, and art thou gone? At the same time he took him by the right hand, and the hand of the deceased came away, for it had been cut off with a sword by the Egyptians. He, at the sight of this, became yet much more concerned than before. The woman shrieked out in a lamentable manner, and taking the hand from Cyrus kissed it, fitted it to its proper place again as well she could, and said, The rest, Cyrus, is in the same condition, but what need you see it? And I know that I was not one of the least concerned in these his sufferings, and perhaps you were not less so. For I, fool that I was, frequently exhorted him to behave in such a manner as to appear a friend to you worthy of notice, and I know he never thought of what he himself should suffer, but of what he should do to please you. He is dead, therefore," said she, without reproach, and I who urged him on sit here alive." Cyrus shedding tears for some time in silence then spoke. He has died, woman, the noblest death, for he has died victorious. Do you adorn him with these things that I furnish you with? Gabrias and Gadatus were then come up, and had brought rich ornaments in great abundance with them. Then, said he, be assured that he shall not want respect and honour in all other things, but over and above multitudes shall concur in raising him a monument that shall be worthy of us, and all the sacrifices shall be made him that are proper to be made in honour of a brave man. You shall not be left destitute, but for the sake of your modesty and every other virtue I will pay you all other honours, as well as place those about you who will conduct you wherever you please. Do you but make it known to me where it is that you desire to be conveyed to." And Panthea replied, "'Be confident, Cyrus, I will not conceal from you to whom it is that I desire to go.' He, having said this, went away with great pity for her that she should have lost such a husband, and for the man that he should have left such a wife behind him, never to see her more. Panthea then gave orders for her servants to retire. Till such time, she said, as I shall have lamented my husband as I please. Her nurse she bid to stay, and gave orders that, when she was dead, she would wrap her and her husband up in one mantle together. The nurse, after having repeatedly begged her not to do this, and meeting with no success, but observing her to grow angry, sat down herself, breaking out into tears. She, being beforehand provided with a sword, killed herself, and laying her head down on her husband's breast, she died. The nurse set up a lamentable cry and covered them both, as Panthea had directed. Cyrus, as soon as he was informed of what the woman had done, being struck with it, went to help her if he could. The servants, three in number, seeing what had been done, drew their swords and killed themselves as they stood at the place where she had ordered them. And the monument is now said to have been raised by continuing the mound on to the servants, and on a pillar above, they say, the names of the man and woman were written in Syriac letters. 
Below were three pillars, and they were inscribed thus. Of the servants. Cyrus, when he came to this melancholy scene, was struck with admiration of the woman, and having lamented over her went away. He took care, as was proper, that all the funeral rites should be paid them in the noblest manner, and the monument, they say, was raised up to a very great size. These be the ancients, who so many assert, had no idea of the dignity of woman or of marriage. Such love Xenophon could paint as subsisting between those who after death would see one another never more. Thousands of years have passed since, and with the reception of the cross, the nations assume the belief that those who part thus may meet again and forever, if spiritually fitted to one another, as Abradatus and Panthea were, and yet do we see such marriages among them? If at all, how often? I must quote two more short passages from Xenophon, for he is a writer who pleases me well. Cyrus receiving the Armenians whom he had conquered. To Granis, said he, at what rate would you purchase the regaining of your wife? Now Tigranes happened to be but lately married, and had a very great love for his wife. That clause, perhaps, sounds modern. Cyrus, said he, I would ransom her at the expense of my life. Take then your own to yourself, said he. When they came home, one talked of Cyrus's wisdom, another of his patience and resolution, another of his mildness, one spoke of his beauty and smallness of his person, and on that Tigranes asked of his wife, and do you, Armenian dame, think Cyrus handsome? Truly, said she, I did not look at him. At whom then did you look, said Tigranes? At him who said that, to save me from servitude, he would ransom me at the expense of his own life. From the Banquet Socrates, who observed her with pleasure, said, This young girl has confirmed me in the opinion I have had, for a long time, that the female sex are nothing inferior to ours, excepting only in strength of body, or perhaps in steadiness of judgment. In the economics, the manner in which the husband gives counsel to his young wife presents the model of politeness and refinement. Xenophon is thoroughly the gentleman, gentle in breeding and in soul. All the men he describes are so, while the shades of manner are distinctly marked. There is the serene dignity of Socrates, with gleams of playfulness thrown across its cool religious shades, the princely mildness of Cyrus, and the more domestic elegance of the husband in the economics. There is no way that men sin more against refinement as well as discretion, than in their conduct towards their wives. Let them look at the men of Xenophon. Such would know how to give counsel, for they would know how to receive it. They would feel that the most intimate relations claimed most, not least, of refined courtesy. They would not suppose that confidence justified carelessness, nor the reality of affection want of delicacy in the expression of it. Such men would be too wise to hide their affairs from the wife, and then expect her to act as if she knew them. They would know that, if she is expected to face calamity with courage, she must be instructed and trusted in prosperity, or if they had failed in wise confidence, such as the husband shows in the economics, they would be ashamed of anger or querulous surprise at the results that naturally follow. Such men would not be exposed to the bad influence of bad wives, for all wives, bad or good, loved or unloved, inevitably influence their husbands, from the power their position not merely gives, but necessitates of colouring evidence and infusing feelings in hours when the—patient, shall I call him—is off his guard. 
Those who understand the wife's mind, and think it worth while to respect her springs of action, know better where they are. But to the bad or thoughtless man, who lives carelessly and irreverently so near another mind, the wrong he does daily back upon himself recoils. A Cyrus, an Abradatus, knows where he stands. But to return to the thread of my subject. Another sign of the times is furnished by the triumphs of female authorship. These have been great, and are constantly increasing. Women have taken possession of so many provinces for which men had pronounced them unfit, that though these still declare there are some inaccessible to them, it is difficult to say just where they must stop. The shining names of famous women have cast light upon the path of the sex, and many obstructions have been removed. When a Montague could learn better than her brother, and use her lore afterwards to such purpose as an observer, it seemed amiss to hinder women from preparing themselves to see, or from seeing all they could when prepared. Since Somerville has achieved so much, will any young girl be prevented from seeking a knowledge of the physical sciences if she wishes it? De Stael's name was not so clear of offence. She could not forget the woman in the thought. While she was instructing you as a mind, she wished to be admired as a woman. Sentimental tears often dimmed the eagle glance. Her intellect, too, with all its splendour, trained in a drawing-room, fed on flattery, was tainted and flawed. Yet its beams make the obscurest schoolroom in New England warmer and lighter to the little rugged girls who are gathered together on its wooden bench. They may never through life hear her name, but she is not the less their benefactress. The influence has been such that the aim certainly is now in arranging school instruction for girls to give them as fair a field as boys. As yet, indeed, these arrangements are made with little judgment or reflection, just as the tutors of Lady Jane Grey, and other distinguished women of her time, taught them Latin and Greek because they knew nothing else themselves, so now the improvement in the education of girls is to be made by giving them young men as teachers, who only teach what has been taught themselves at college, while methods and topics need revision for these new subjects, which could be better made by those who had experienced the same wants. Women are often at the head of these institutions, but they have as yet seldom been thinking women, capable of organizing a new whole for the wants of the time, and choosing persons to officiate in the departments. And when some portion of instruction of a good sort is got from the school, the far greater proportion which is infused from the general atmosphere of society contradicts its purport. Yet books and a little elementary instruction are not furnished in vain. Women are better aware how great and rich the universe is, not so easily blinded by narrowness or partial views of a home-circle. Her mother did so before her, is no longer a sufficient excuse. Indeed it was never received as an excuse to mitigate the severity of censure, but was adduced as a reason, rather, why there should be no effort made for reformation. Whether much or little has been done or will be done, whether women will add to the talent of narration the power of systematizing, whether they will carve marble as well as draw and paint, is not important. But that it should be acknowledged that they have intellect which needs developing, that they should not be considered complete if beings of affection and habit alone, is important. Yet even this acknowledgment, rather conquered by woman than proffered by man, has been sullied by the usual selfishness. Too much is said of women being better educated that they may become better companions and mothers for men. They should be fit for such companionship, and we have mentioned with satisfaction instances where it has been established. Earth knows no fairer, holier relation than that of a mother. 
it is one which, rightly understood, must both promote and require the highest attainments. But a being of infinite scope must not be treated with an exclusive view to any one relation. Give the soul free course, let the organization, both of body and mind, be freely developed, and the being will be fit for any and every relation to which it may be called. The intellect, no more than the sense of hearing, is to be cultivated merely that woman may be more valuable companion to man, but because the power who gave a power, by its mere existence signifies, that it must be brought out toward perfection. In this regard of self-dependence, and a greater simplicity and fullness of being, we must hail as a preliminary the increase of the class contemptuously designated as old maids. We cannot wonder at the aversion with which old bachelors and old maids have been regarded. Marriage is the natural means of forming a sphere, of taking root in the earth. It requires more strength to do this without such an opening. Very many have failed, and their imperfections have been in every one's way. They have been more partial, more harsh, more officious and impertinent than those compelled by severe friction to render themselves endurable. Those who have a more full experience of the instincts have a distrust as to whether the unmarried can be more thoroughly human and humane, such as is hinted in the old saying, old maids and bachelors' children are well cared for, which derides at once their ignorance and their presumption. Yet the business of society has become so complex that it could now scarcely be carried on without the presence of these despised auxiliaries, and detachments from the army of aunts and uncles are wanted to stop gaps in every hedge. They rove about, mental and moral Ishmaelites, pitching their tents amid the fixed and ornamented homes of men. In a striking variety of forms, genius of late, both at home and abroad, has paid its tribute to the character of the aunt and the uncle, recognizing in these personages the spiritual parents who have supplied defects in the treatment of the busy or careless actual parents. They also gain a wider, if not so deep, experience. Those who are not intimately and permanently linked with others are thrown upon themselves, and if they do not there find peace and incessant life, there is none to flatter them that they are not very poor and very mean. A position which so constantly admonishes may be of inestimable benefit. The person may gain, undistracted by other relationships, a closer communion with the one. Such a use is made of it by saints and sibyls. Or she may be one of the lay sisters of charity, a canoness, bound by an inward vow. Or the useful drudge of all men, the Martha, much sought, little prized. Or the intellectual interpreter of the varied life she sees, the Urania of a half-formed world's twilight. Or she may combine all these not needing to care that she may please a husband, a frail and limited being, her thoughts may turn to the centre, and she may, by steadfast contemplation entering into the secret of truth and love, use it for the good of all men, instead of a chosen few, and interpret through it all the forms of life. It is possible, perhaps, to be at once a priestly servant and a loving muse. Saints and geniuses have often chosen a lonely position, in the faith that if, undisturbed by the pressure of near ties, they would give themselves up to the inspiring spirit, it would enable them to understand and reproduce life better than actual experience could. How many old maids take this high stand we cannot say. It is an unhappy fact that too many who have come before the eye are gossips, rather, and not always good-natured gossips. But if these abuse, and none make the best of their vocation, yet it has not failed to produce some good results. It has been seen by others, if not by themselves, 
that beings likely to be left alone need to be fortified and furnished within themselves, and education and thought have tended more and more to regard these beings as related to absolute being as well as to others. It has been seen that, as the breaking of no bond ought to destroy a man, so ought the missing of none to hinder him from growing. And thus a circumstance of the time, which springs rather from its luxury than its purity, has helped to place women on the true platform. Perhaps the next generation, looking deeper into this matter, will find that contempt is put upon old maids, or old women at all, merely because they do not use the elixir which would keep them always young. Under its influence a gem brightens yearly which is only seen to more advantage the fissures time makes in the casket. No one thinks of Michelangelo's Persian Sibyl, or St. Teresa, or Tasso's Leonora, or the Greek Electra as an old maid, more than of Michelangelo or Canova as old bachelors, though all had reached the period in life's course appointed to take that degree. End of section 7